Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Dr. Oliver Thompson. So in this episode, I spoke with Dr. Ben Darlow. Ben is a clinician, teacher and researcher. He works clinically as a musculoskeletal physiotherapy specialist based in private practice in Wellington, New Zealand. His teaching and research are based in the Department of Primary Healthcare and General Practice at the University of Otago. And his research interests lie in the understanding and management of common MSK conditions such as low back pain and osteoarthritis. And many of you will be aware of Ben's excellent research into back pain beliefs, both his qualitative work, especially his papers, The Enduring Impact of What Clinicians Say to Patients with Back Pain, and the paper Easy to Harm, Hard to Heal, Patients' Views About the Back, plus his quantitative work, such as the development of the Back Pain Attitudes Questionnaire, otherwise known as the Backpack Tool, which is now widely used by researchers across the globe in the study of back pain. So in this episode, we talked about the nature, origins and importance of back pain beliefs. We dig down into the role of the clinician in co-constructing beliefs, narratives and frameworks with people experiencing back pain. And we talk about the challenges and opportunities of providing diagnoses and explanations to people in pain. So I was really excited to speak to Ben. He was way up on the list of people I wanted to have on the show as his work's been hugely transformative for me personally, and I know extremely influential for many MSK colleagues. I really enjoy talking to Ben. He has a wealth of knowledge and is able to relate the knowledge and evidence that he has to clinical practice in an immensely engaging and accessible way. So enjoy the show, and I bring you Dr. Ben Darlow. Ben, many people will know of you and know of your work. So maybe you could start just by telling the listeners a bit about you. Uh, sure. I'm a uh, musculoskeletal physiotherapy specialist, uh, but also I am an academic and I'm based in the Department of Primary Healthcare and General Practice at the University of Otago, Wellington, where I do research primarily around uh, common musculoskeletal conditions uh, and particularly around how people both people who experience these conditions and clinicians make sense of these and how that influences people's uh, approaches to management and recovery. So, as I might have said, um, many people will be familiar with your work, or at least I'm familiar with your work, in regards to back pain beliefs and also the, the enduring impact that clinicians have on patients' beliefs and attitudes around their pain. And you were certainly one of the, the, the number one people I wanted to speak to when, when kind of developing this podcast. And so it's great that we, we finally get a chance to speak. So maybe we can start just by just kind of sketching out f- for the listeners when people, when we're talking about back pain beliefs, what kind of things are we, are we referring to? Sure. I mean, I think th- there's, a, there's a range of things, um, but there are some key constructs or domains that they have been grouped within. Uh, Things like um, pain self-efficacy, and so that's someone's confidence whether or not it's okay to participate in or continue with their normal tasks when they're experiencing pain. Uh, There is recovery expectation, 
because expectations have a strong influence or are one of the stronger predictors we have of how well people recover. Um, But again, those expectations will be informed by a whole range of different information sources that that person is accessing. Uh, There are fear avoidance beliefs, and so the beliefs about whether or not uh, it's safe to engage in movement and activity based upon a fear that there might be production of more pain or more injury. Uh, Catastrophization is another grouping whereby people might assume that whatever is causing their pain experience is catastrophic or, or very bad, or that the impact that that's going to have on their life is going to be very severe. And so, so and I think, sorry, good, good. No, I was just, I, so I think that's some of the, the core constructs that, that we're, um, we're able to, to measure in some way. But the key point, I think, is that those, they're all interrelated and overlap. And so it's not necessarily that they are discrete and separate, mm. but that they're just those constructs have have been developed through ways that we might try and access some of those beliefs. But actually, it's going to be much more nuanced in terms of what is informing those attitudes or beliefs for individual people. I mean, yeah, I think you're quite right. It's a bit like the biopsychosocial model, which which tends to quite neatly separate out biological, social, and psychological factors. But the reality is these things are all kind of interwoven and, and... affecting each other at any, any one moment. And I guess the same with the beliefs that, that this is artificial separation, I, I suppose for researchers or to have a conversation about these beliefs, we need to begin to separate them out to have some kind of comparison, but perhaps, perhaps it's a clinically that makes it quite challenging because we, the, the beliefs are typically artificially separated in the literature and then clinicians just kind of go and try and fi- find these beliefs or find these constructs and as presumed kind of therapeutic targets. If you can identify the the kind of faulty belief, you can intervene, And but it's not always that straightforward. Yeah, I, I completely agree with that. And I think one of the risks is that it can lead to labelling as well and that, oh, this person is fear avoidant or this person is a catastrophizer. And I don't think that labelling people who are in distress or have a health challenge in that way is necessarily something that is going to help them move forwards. Whereas trying to understand what it is that's informing these assessments and judgments that people are making is something to then try and see is there different information or knowledge that we can add into that to enable the person to look at things differently and potentially make different decisions. But I think that is a real challenge from a research perspective in terms of measuring these things meaningfully and then trying to intervene to see if we can change them, given that the expression of these different attitudes and beliefs is going to be so unique in each person. And I think that might be one of the reasons why any relationship that we find between these individual constructs and outcome is always weak. I mean, it may well be stronger than any relationship we've been able to find with biomechanical or anatomical um, measures, but it's still the impact of these constructs on, on outcome is still pretty weak. But I think from a clinician's point of view, actually they, they can use some good screening tools like the uh, Arebro Musculoskeletal Pain Questionnaire or maybe the the, um, Start Back tool or things to 
cue them into whether or not this um, person is likely to have barriers to their recovery based upon how they're thinking about their condition. But what clinicians are really good at is talking to people. And I think that actually for an individual with whom you're in a therapeutic interaction, it's you get much more information from discussing how they're understanding what's going on and what they expect is going to happen than you'll ever get from giving them a, uh, a research tool uh, to try and measure these beliefs. Yeah, I think that's quite right. And I suppose that's where the whole kind of tell me your story or, or trying to situate some of these beliefs in the context of the patient's narrative or, or personal circumstances becomes crucial. And that then requires a whole load of other skills around listening and talking and engaging and forming a relationship. Yeah, well, for me, that was the real joy of the initial research I did because I, I hadn't previously done qualitative research. And having an opportunity to sit down with a person where it's tell me your story and to be able to probe that, say, we're going to spend an hour talking about this, and with no expectation of me to provide a therapeutic intervention. And in fact, uh, an explicit, I cannot provide you any yeah. therapy or my opinions as part of this. I'm just going to want to know what your experience is and what your understanding is of what's going on. And what I've really learned through that is how much value you get out of giving the person an opportunity to really share their story and how actually a lot of the key therapeutic opportunities just emerge from that without any real real effort. And often how the person themselves will identify through that telling when there are places where there might be discordances or where things don't don't make sense, and then we'll start to reflect on things themselves as to, oh, maybe that, that's not quite the way I thought it was. Uh, so, I, yeah, I, what I was really, uh, I guess, intrigued by or what I really felt like I learned from, from doing the, that qualitative research was the value of letting people speak. You're right. It really is really quite transformative in, in terms of your your practice because – when you're doing the research, you are so engaged, aren't you, with that individual? You're kind of listening out for words, phrases, um, not assuming meaning. Um, you're in in kind of real deep kind of analysis of, of of what the person's saying. At the same time, listening out to to offer you know, prompts or cues or, or kind of follow up questions. And those skills, and I've said this before, they they kind of translate really nicely to clinical practice. Probably probably not as an, in in such an intense way, perhaps. Um, than say in a research setting, but certainly in a clinical setting, you can you can take some of those skills from qualitative interviewing and, and apply them quite nicely to just case history taking or, or conversation with patients. Yeah, completely. And I think the the key skill I learned from it is to keep quiet. Yeah. And yeah. just sit and wait for the person yeah. to to fill the space and to give them time to think about these things that they often won't have explicitly thought about when you first ask a person about, so what do you think's going on inside your back? They might give you a very blank look, but giving them the time to actually think about it and then yeah. they can start to put words to something that isn't something that isn't a knowledge base that they've held verbally before. And so often that, that, that can be a challenging process for the person. And I think what I, I learned is it takes time and I don't need to fill that space myself and I don't need to try and lead them to where I think yeah. they want to be going. 
because that is going to bias them towards what I'm thinking, which is the opportunity here is for me to find out what they are thinking. Yeah. And I think also not presuming to know what they're thinking. And I think we, we don't, we, it's so easy to assume people will be fearful, will be distressed or, or to, you know, to, to feel a certain way. Um, and we do that all the time in life. We make presumptions based on intuitions, but in quality research, you really, you really do want to understand you know, their reality, their perspective, how things are, are from, from their point of view. And so you kind of don't adopt a position of presumption. And I think taking some of those, those principles into, into the clinical setting where you can just, just be really open about what, how is this person feeling? What do you think is going on with your back or, or, or with your pain? Those, the, those positions of naivety, I think, from the part of the clinician or researcher, I think offer, they open up lots of doors of, of information. Completely. And I think it is that also not judging yeah. um, what the person's saying because they're saying it based upon their knowledge and their lived experience. And their lived experience can't be wrong, but they may well be using different information sources with which to inform their judgments. And that's where something like uh, fear avoidance, often if you look at the way those models are described, they assume an irrational fear that's informing this person's judgment or approaches or behaviors. Whereas what I found from talking to people is that actually they were making very considered decisions. And these were based upon their balancing of the harms and the benefits of performing any particular activity. But that often their understanding of the harms well, the way they were looking at the potential for harm was as, as, as much more risky than I would have been looking for someone in their situation. And so that's through trying looking at it as much more of a rational decision-making process. Well, then it provides us much more of an opportunity to feed other information into that or giving them an opportunity to test out some of their assumptions and to see whether or not they can draw different conclusions. And that I think that ties into Samantha Bunsley's work, doesn't it? The common sense model of pain, where it's about kind of an incoherent f- framework or understanding of of pain, just creates perceptions of fear or threat or anxiety. Not it's not necessarily the fear of harm or the fear of damage, but rather the fear of the unknown or the fear of um, just not not really understanding what's going on. Yeah, or a rational decision that when my pain is flared, I'm no longer able to look yeah. after my children. Yeah. Or, or, and so yeah. that's quite rational to not want to do that because of the impact it not only has on myself, but has on, on others. But then it might be exploring ways that it could be engaging in that, that don't cause it to flare to that level, but might still allow you to do more than what you're doing now. And so, yeah, I agree in terms of that, that common sense model. It's just another way of dividing people's, um, those constructs up yeah. into a way in which manageable chunks that help people to explore them. And so whichever model someone uses as in terms of a clinician, it's just making sure that they're, they're having the opportunity to, to explore all of the different ways in which the person's thinking about this and how the, those, those, those understandings might be affecting one, what they experience and two, what their opportunities are for moving forwards. And it's also entirely rational not to, 
to move or to use your back if you if you've been told that it's damaged or twisted or out of place or all these things that um, patients have been told and clinicians have, have used in terms of terminology. So that's, that's entirely rational. I mean, if you think that your pelvis is unstable and your sacrum's just kind of about to drop out between your trousers, then I, I wouldn't move either. No, I completely agree with you. And I think that's where, as clinicians, we need to just carefully consider, well, why am I providing this particular piece of information to the, this person? How do I want them to use that information? What would happen if I didn't provide it? And what does this mean to this person with whom I'm sharing it? Because I think I was really surprised with some of the findings that we found, particularly from that early paper that you're talking about, about the influence of clinicians on people, that models that I had previously thought were helpful self-management strategies that the person could employ on their own. They were part of active coping. They were part of good exercise, uh, like you know, doing core muscle training that actually there are side effects that can be associated with that as well. And that for many people, they would interpret the message that you need to strengthen the muscles around your spine as an indication that the clinician thought their spine was not strong enough. And so although that, you know, there is, was, well, there is research uh, evidence to say that people who do these specific type of exercises have slightly improved outcomes. That's got to be balanced by the other impacts that that could have on people. And if they could achieve those same outcomes by doing different forms of exercise that may well add more value to their life, well, then we need to consider that in terms of what we're encouraging this person to engage in. So, yeah, no, I, so because the actual... The actual maneuvers, the the actual core type stuff, the navel to spine and the and the bracing in themselves, aren't, they're not harmful in themselves. It's but it's the beliefs and the the kind of information which are kind of t- is tied to the model. So if people people are just doing those those exercises in themselves, they may strengthen the spine. They could have might help with some kind of movement. But if they're doing them whilst at the same time thinking this is stabilizing my spine, it's stabilizing my pelvis. I've just got to keep on doing it, keep on doing it. It's those kind of beliefs. It's the beliefs tied to the activity rather than the activity itself being the harm. Is that is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, so certainly, I mean, if you love doing abdominal exercises, well, by all means, do abdominal exercises. <laughs> my experience is most people actually love doing forms of exercise that involve them moving around and engaging with their world more than lying on the floor and, and, and pulling the belly button in. But I think the certainly the beliefs that go with it can, can be um, harmful, but also the way in which people will then employ those. And so what people told me was that they believed those muscles were there in order to help them to stop moving their spine so they could protect it more. And so rather than muscles being performance generators, which is what I think of them as, they became movement limiters. And then they increase all the co-contraction around the spine. Um, and that guarding itself can then feed into more nociception because those muscles aren't functioning in a normal contract, relaxed type way. But also they take away the opportunity for this person to 
move their spine and learn that moving their spine is okay. And then they have other impacts on restricting people's ability to breathe and and sing and uh, do lots of other things as well. And so it's, it is the beliefs that go with those, but then the way in which people um, employ those strategies in their lives as well. Yeah, no, it's, it's, um, it's, it's still, a, it's still such a dominant model, that whole model. And you see it, you see it in gyms and people still planking themselves to, to complete rigidity. Um, and it, and they're, and they're, they're, they're hard beliefs to kind of just dispel. And I think that they're, maybe some of those particular movements, those activities are also tied to aesthetics and getting their tummy flat and, and kind of trainers just encouraging their clients to just kind of brace and be strong and be strong. And, um, they just become quite, quite ingrained. And, and it's, I know for my patients, it could be quite a real challenge to, to just to change some of those perceptions or change some of those beliefs. But like you said, if people enjoy doing it and some people, there are some that probably actually do like doing that but maybe if they're honest honest with themselves they 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 don't really yeah and i think you know there are lots of dominant beliefs around the back that are very prevalent in our societies and they're not just prevalent in lay people they're prevalent in trainers they're prevalent in health professionals and, and they're prevalent in journalists and media and so there is this self-reinforcing cycle where it is very hard to find out what are the different information sources that need to be shared broadly across the community to allow people to do things differently. So, you know, very, there are very dominant beliefs around posture, uh, around lifting techniques, uh, around the dangers of sitting, uh, that there's no good evidence really um, to support um, but that without there being some explicit messaging that can go quite broadly, we are only able to influence on a one-on-one -on -one basis with, with uh, the person who's in the clinic in front of us, which means that at the same time, there are a whole lot more people being, you know, you could say infected with or um, inoculated <laughs> with the, that's the, a very these, current. these beliefs out the community. <laughs> It's a very current term. Yes, I guess that has some very current um, <laughs> uh, valence in terms of uh, the type of wording you might use around that. And um, and so, where do these beliefs come from? So, so we acknowledge that they're these are the the prevalent beliefs across society and across large populations as well as individuals. Where and this is where some of your early work what it looked at. Where do they? Where are people getting these beliefs from? Yeah, well, I mean, I guess for where the beliefs came from was well-intentioned people trying to solve problems. So if we look at, you know, lifting beliefs, well, there was from, you know, I guess the, the, the 20s onwards, uh, an increase in the amount of back pain-related pain disability in society. People were trying to answer questions around, well, why is this such an issue? Well, maybe we're, we're lifting more. And so then someone comes up with a biomechanical model saying that, well, when you're lifting, there's, you know, it has these influences on, on the load in the back and obviously it'd be much better if the back's straight than if it's bent. And that was based upon their understanding of what might be going on. Now, those beliefs have been continuously debunked, I guess, over the last 20 years. And the more it's looked at, the less... 
uh, clear there is any relationship either between lifting and back pain or more particularly the technique you use when you lift. Um, so, you know, I think these beliefs were generated from well-intentioned sources, but were disseminated before they had an opportunity to be tested. And then from a you know an individual's perspective now, well, you know, there are beliefs in society that people are exposed to throughout their lives, whereby um, teachers at school might tell them to sit up straight, and the reason they want they say to the person is because otherwise you'll have a back problem when you know. Otherwise, they could also say, otherwise you won't look confident or otherwise you don't look engaged, but back yeah. pain is the one that they choose. Yeah. And so there, there, you know, there are all these different sources in society that are building these beliefs in someone, but then more particularly when someone has a back pain experience, what we found is that they will then go and seek more information to try and resolve any of the uncertainties that they have. And people did access the internet, but we found they were quite sophisticated in the way in which they used that. And a number of the people I interviewed said, look, I started Googling this. And I said, hey, look, this information really isn't helpful for me. It's just freaking me out. And so I turned off the internet. Um, and then so the internet seemed to be sort of, you know, an easy to access, but a relatively um, weak influencer in terms of other sources, whereas family members were a stronger influence and particularly if there was a family member who had expertise i.e someone who had a back pain experience themselves but then health professionals were seen as being a more authoritative source and so being a, in a room with a health professional because remembering people go to health professionals with these problems because they have uncertainty and they're looking for more information. And so they're already primed and ready to integrate the information that, and accept the information this person provides. So health professionals certainly seemed to be the most influential um, source or uh, impact on, on people's beliefs. But then within health professionals, there seemed to be a little bit of a hierarchy as well, whereby general practitioners were seen as being, you know, very important uh, parts of these people's healthcare teams, but there was a perception that they didn't know much about back pain. And so maybe, you know, I'm not going to value their uh, uh, information as highly as I might a musculoskeletal practitioner. So thinking about the physiotherapist or the osteopaths or the chiropractors, uh, because people saw them as having more specific expertise in this area. And also I think the person uh, spends much more time interacting with those rehabilitation providers. So rather than being a single 10 or 15 minute consult, they're seeing this person multiple times over a period of weeks. And then more, I guess, at the top of the hierarchy from the people we interviewed were orthopedic surgeons. And so they, whatever they said, the person took as being fact. And so they had a, a very strong influence on the way people viewed things. And you, yeah, you see that in, in clinical practice. Certainly I do that there is this kind of hierarchy of, of knowledge or, or information that, that the consultants are, are, you're right, they tend to, to have a much more authoritative position and, and their information tends to be valued. But sometimes they'll, they might be suggesting surgery, but the patient says, actually, I don't want surgery. I'm, you know, I'm not going to have, and they'll say to me, yeah, he suggested surgery or she suggested surgery, but no, I'm not going to have that. So there's sometimes patients kind of do find a voice, don't they? When they, when they're confronted with, with, with surgery. Oh, very much so. And 
always there's going to be that balance between the you know what the outcome the person's looking and what their values are and also what they think of the the risks that they're willing to take in order to get there um, but what the challenge is I think for the the surgeons when they're having that consultation with the person or the conversation to say okay well I think there might be surgical options that we could use to address this problem and if the person says no for them to still value that as being a worth uh, you know a, a reasonable decision to make and to have a discussion with the person about the other options that might also be things that would be worth trying as a way of addressing this because if surgery is your key um, mode of providing care to people your understanding of the other opportunities or the different ways of managing that might not be as strong as people who are involved in, in providing the, those other services. And so you we said that Healthcare professionals are a, a really powerful source of information and a source of belief for, for patients experiencing back pain. What are some of the things that clinicians now might be doing which might be inadvertently shaping patients' beliefs for perhaps for the worse rather than the better? Are there things that, w- w- that you were doing or you look back at your clinical practice and think, God, you know, I can't believe I'm doing that. You mentioned the, the kind of core stability, but anything else that we might all be doing or have have been doing, which might not have been entirely helpful in shaping useful beliefs for patients experiencing pain? Um, I think, yeah, I mean, there are key management approaches that, that certainly I would have used in the past uh, around core muscle strength, around uh, maintenance of posture. Um, and particularly with posture, what I found is a game that was saying to people that your back is not stable, it needs to be protected and held in certain positions or else something will go wrong. And that through having to monitor posture and control it all the time, what that was doing is one, it was meaning people were uh, holding muscles in a tonic state for long periods of time during which they, they, they could well fatigue, but also that they were having to constantly be vigilant, so pay attention to their back. And so we know from pain science that the more vigilant someone is about an area and the more they are attending to it, the more likely it is that the system's going to protect that and that pain will be one of the ways in which it does so. Um, so posture is a, is a strong one. Um, lifting technique is another, whereby uh, telling people that they should be lifting with a straight back and that lifting heavy loads is dangerous. So that often is a challenge for people because one, Often it doesn't feel particularly natural to lift in those ways, and they use a lot more energy to lift uh, with a straight back than, than, than just stooping and picking for a, a lot of things. But also it increases people's risk perception, and so if their expectation when because they have to lift something in a particular way uh, because of the way the environment's set up, if their expectation is that this is dangerous, then they're much more likely to have a pain experience associated with that activity than they would be otherwise. Um, so I think those are some of those key management approaches, um, but also some of the explanatory models that I might have used with people previously. So I may have used explanatory models around um, things going on within their disc. Um, so previously, if I go back you know, 20, 20 years, I would have been telling people that if I found their back pain improved through doing repeated extension, that was an indi- or if their pain 
moved from their limb towards their back as they did repeated extension, that that was an indication that there was a derangement within their, their disc in their back whereby there was a bulge or a pressure or some fluid moving towards the back of the disc and what they were doing with their extensions is they were pushing that fluid back forwards and reducing that derangement um, and that therefore they shouldn't be bending while they, they were healing and then we'd need to be cautious with bending going forwards eventually we'd restore it um, but that they should treat their back like a bank account from henceforth and so whenever they're bending they should do a bit of extending to balance it out now that was all based upon uh, good clinical experience that people who did these movements did seem to improve and it was it gave them some agency it was an exercise they could do at home but at the same point it's not actually based upon any good uh, evidence that that's actually what goes on and there are probably some much better neurophysiological explanations for, for how, how that whole process works but again it was telling the person that bending is dangerous and bending is something that we need to do a lot within our daily lives. And so if it's the same thing, when people are approaching bending every time, thinking this is not good for me, then the risks of them having a problem with that are much higher. And certainly I saw patients come back into our clinic, not necessarily ones I'd seen, but I remember one guy came in and he said, and I, I said, okay, have a sit down, we'll have a chat. And he said, uh, he looked at me and he smiled and laughed. He said, ah, oh, you tried to catch me out, didn't you? No, 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 I'm not going to sit. And I said, well, why not? He said, no, no, I was here three years ago and I was told all about this. I haven't sat down in the last three years apart from when I've gone to the toilet. <laughs> and, you know, as, a, as a, a, a striking sort of example of that makes you think, wow, the impact of what we say to these people. Now, that's obviously an extreme, but possibly it's having the similar effect to smaller levels in a whole range of people. And so those explanatory models we use, and whether it be about what's going on with a disc, or whether it be about how a joint is aligned or how a joint is moving, they all have a, an impact on, on people's understanding of how safe it is to move and how safe it is for them to use their bag. And if what we're saying is reinforcing that it's not safe, or we're telling people that they shouldn't be doing things that are painful, then we're taking their self-efficacy away and increasing the risk that they might have persistent problems. And I think, yeah, that's a really good point, that, that patients tend to expect, expect a, um, some deep analysis of, of, of movement or posture or or lifting when they when they see a healthcare professional that that they're often expecting they're expecting that explanatory model in a way I mean not necessarily the the, the in its in, in a detailed form but you know certainly the clinician to to really determine what's going on with their muscles joints bones and so what's your advice around addressing that that potential tension between expectation of receiving that explanatory model in in a simplified form. Um, but they're not getting it because it's nocebic and not helpful. So, so how do how do clinicians going to mitigate that that um, not meeting those expectations and patients being disappointed or disillusioned or or not particularly trustful of the clinician? Well, I think uh, first of all we we need to understand what it is that that are really the concerns of this person about their back. And so, if the person is concerned that they have slipped a disc, which is a yeah. You know, 
common term that people use, but we possibly have quite different understandings of what that might mean. Or if they were worried that a joint is out of place or that a nerve is pinched, I think as part of our physical examination, we have to explore that so that we can gather sufficient information to provide the person our perspective on whether or not we think this is part of their issue. And so through doing the neurologic examination, well, then I can give the person good information about whether or not there are any indications for me that there is a change in conduction along their nerve. And if there is no evidence of that, well, then I can reassure them that we've explored this well, but the fact that you have good power, you have good reflexes and your sensation is good means that there's no indication that anything is interfering with that nerve and certainly nothing compressing it. So we don't need to worry about that. So I think we do need to take on board what their concerns are. And also I think we need to broaden our thoughts around what is the information that this physical examination provides us. Because yes, it does give us some hard, for want of a word, better word, uh, information around how aspects of their, their body is functioning. But also, it can tell us a lot around how they're thinking about movement and activity. And so if when you watch the person move, you know, and this is where still, I think, a degree of fine-grained analysis of how people are approaching things, but if you see that there is a lot of guarding in their paraspinal muscles, for instance, when you ask them to bend, or that they're very slow about the way they do it, you can see the apprehension, they're holding their breath, they're trying to maintain their back in a, in a dozed position as long as possible, and then they get a big jolt of pain before they relax. Whatever those, those findings are, that, that's still all information around that's going to influence or inform how we should explain this problem to the person and how we might find a different approaches to, to dealing with that. But I think also with that physical examination is not just an opportunity to gather information. It is also an opportunity to share information. So I will be constantly through my examination, be trying to give the person a commentary about what I'm finding and how I might interpret that. And particularly things that are really reassuring. So say someone comes in and um, you know, I do some, some movement standing up first and um, often through that, I will, again, going back to those old models I was using where I was doing repeated movements, I'll still do repeated movements with people, but I will approach that slightly differently. Whereas in the past, I would have been confident to push someone into their extension-related pain because that felt very safe to me. I didn't think I was going to cause further damage to the disc, but I was very cautious about getting them to bend. Whereas now, when I see them bending and they experience some pain with that, then I might say to them, well, look, often people feel better the more they move. What I'd like to see is what happens for you. As you're doing that movement, I want you to relax as much as you can. And I want to see if we just push into that pain or that stiffness a little bit at the end of the range, and we repeat that a few times, what happens? And so then it gives us an opportunity to explore together in an environment that's safe with someone whom hopefully they trust. Well, what is actually the reality about if you move this more and if you move into your pain a little bit, does that change what you experience? And often you find that people end up moving a little bit better. And I mean, this is a bit like a behavioral experiment that, yeah. that psychologists would do where they're exposing people to something that they are fearful of or from which they're predicting a bad outcome and then giving them the opportunity to, to draw different conclusions based upon a new lived experience. And so 
you know, we can look at doing those movements differently, but then if I get them up on the bed, you know, if I'm doing, say, some uh, sacroiliac joint provocation tests to see whether or not that might be part of the nociceptive contributors to their, their symptoms, then the fact that I, as I'm doing those, I say, oh, look, I've just tested out that sacroiliac joint really well. There's no, no sign of any issue there, so I don't think that's part of your problem. And so that can take a, a concern away from the person as we're going. And so, because one of the problems can be if you're, if it just feels to the person like your information gathering, and either that can seem to them that, look, they're doing all these tests and they're not finding anything. Jeepers, it must be really well hidden. Or it must be really bad if he's not going to tell me anything yeah. about what he's finding. He's just thinking about the best way he can tell it to me later. And so hmm. being able to share that with the person, oh, look, that straight leg raise is really excellent. That says that, you know, to me that you're, there's not um, any excessive sensitivity in, your, in the, your nervous system down the back of your leg or you know, whatever it is that I'm finding. And so that, I think that can be a really helpful way as well that we can just start to open those conversations. And then it also prepares the person more for what that explanation is at the end yeah. as to what I think the contributors to the problem are. And more importantly, what I think the opportunities might be for us to influence those positively. I think I see that's a really, a really great summary that you kind of reconstructing the story with the patient and it's very much so i think if you do it as you go along so when you're doing these individual tests or maneuvers there's a conversation to be had there you know how does it feel that s that straight leg raise is really good you're kind of building this this new story this new kind of framework so when it comes to the point of you perhaps sitting down and having a discussion about your findings it's not this great big surprise that you're taking the patient along, they've been part of this construction. They've been kind of chipping in and adding, you know, their thoughts, their perceptions, and and so it's you've kind of built the story together. Yeah, because I think you know the, the whole consultation is a co-construction, isn't yeah. it? I mean, you know, same as any you know, qualitative type process, in that we we're hopefully coming to a shared understanding. We were both bringing our our experience bases and our knowledge to this interaction to try and reach a shared understanding and then identify some opportunities whereby we might be able to improve the, the way that this person feels. Yeah. And whereas maybe perhaps in the past it's been too much the other way, it's, it's been a construction, but on the part it's been a one-sided construction or just getting the, the explanatory clinical model and just using it as a template and imprinting it on the patient's experience, if you like, or presentation. Mm. But the person still feels valued and yeah. that you have appropriately explored their problem. Yeah. Because nobody likes to be cast off. And even if I think that actually in terms of the proportion of um, useful information that I'm drawing from someone, I think I probably get three quarters of it from talking to the person. And then I supplement that with testing some of my theories uh, through that physical examination. But often for the person, they might think that that, that proportion is, is the reverse of that. And so we do need to understand that so that we are still valuing that physical examination and the information that it can give um, and then being able to, to draw all of that information together into it, an explanation that's meaningful. But what's interesting for me was in terms of diagnosis we you can read a lot of the literature that says that people expect a diagnosis when they go in for a healthcare consultation 
But what we found from talking to people was that the reason why they wanted a diagnosis is that they didn't think that you could work out what to do next without that diagnosis or you couldn't have any expectation of how well they might or might not recover without that specific diagnosis. And so I think that's where the opportunity is to do things differently is to, one, explain that actually the specifics of what might or might not be going on inside those particular tissues isn't the key piece of information that I'm going to need in order to recommend things that might be helpful for you. And so as long as we're moving that conversation towards solutions away from problems, my experience is that people are quite quite comfortable with that and quite happy with that. Uh, but we do need to have that conversation and then still give meaningful explanations around what we think this person should do and how we think they might achieve these things that we're going to recommend. Mm, I think, yeah, we've all, we've all read that literature, haven't we, to say that patients desire a wanted diagnosis. I know I've, I've said it when I've given talks and lectures, but um, but it does make you wonder what, what, what they mean or what they mean by diagnosis. Is it a tissue diagnosis or is it just a, a, a better understanding of what's going on? It doesn't have to be, and in fact shouldn't be, some pathoanatomical explanation of what's going on to the, you know, to the level of the tissue or the, or the, the, the joint or the structure. Yeah, well, if we look at you know, what is a diagnosis, I mean, it's a construct in itself, and it's just a way in which we can group people with similar signs and symptoms or presentations together so that we have a better understanding of, one, what we should do to help this person um, or support this person, and two, what the likely outcome is from here. And yeah. so actually, for the vast majority of people presenting with back pain, actually back pain is the diagnosis. And we know from a whole range of research that more specific refinement of that, that diagnosis, um, particularly in terms of the pathoanatomy, doesn't help us to help that person more and may create harms. Yeah. And it's not, it's not refined in the sense of being more precise or being accurate because it's probably... Even, you know, it's, it's it's no more accurate or or precise than just saying back pain, but it's the um, I guess patients they perceive it to be more accurate, don't they? They perceive well if you can name the structure, uh, as you said before, if you can name the structure, then you've got a target, and we you know then treatment can be directed specifically to that 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 piece of my body. Yeah, and and it can increase their um, perception of the clinician's expertise as well. So yeah. when, you know, thinking back to what I was saying about, you know, people didn't value the diagnoses provided by their GPs as highly as they did by the uh, chiropractor or the physio because they didn't feel like they were giving as specific a diagnosis and that they didn't have the skills enabled in order to do that. Um, whereas we could say, well, actually, that, you know, back pain is a more honest diagnosis. Uh, in terms of what the evidence would say as to how accurate we actually are at providing some of those more um, discrete, shall we say, diagnoses or focused on particular tissues. Yeah. But also they do just then focus on one small aspect of a pain experience because, sure, nociception is invariably part of these pain experiences, but it's never pain before it's 
put together and interpreted in a brain, and the brain is never going to interpret that in a vacuum without taking in a whole lot of other information sources and contextual influences. And that's possibly what some of those other clinicians that haven't been so focused on the anatomy and biomechanics have a better understanding on uh, and how to how different aspects of this person's life and situation influence how they will make sense of this health experience. And I think that's something that us clinicians who may have traditionally been focused very much on the tissues should try and learn from and expand our skill sets in relation to. And just think about the skill set. What's your sense about how prepared clinicians are? Or rather, do you, have you, do you see a change, uh, maybe from your side, that clinicians are more prepared or, or we've got graduates coming out who are more prepared to, more co- comfortable to ex- to explore patients' beliefs and experiences and adopt that much more kind of qualitative or communication-based approach to, to their patients? Or what's your, what's your sense? From- yeah, my sense is certainly things are changing over time and, you know, musculoskeletal practitioners are becoming much more comfortable with exploring those domains. But at the same point, it's still very easy to default to some of those traditional models. Mm. I think still there's an opportunity within our training approaches to not bias so much of the assessment that we, examinations that we do as students towards their knowledge of those biomechanical models and their ability to create a a specific tissue-based diagnosis. Um, And so equally valuing their ability to conceptualize those different aspects of this person's health and all the range of influences on it. Because the more we can demonstrate through both the teaching to which the students are exposed and through the way in which that's valued through uh, examinations, that actually this all of this is important then then the better able they are going to be to um, employ that uh, in their consultations but also we need it's going to be an ongoing conversation with existing clinicians to one improve their understanding of the the range of things that they might need to be considering in this interaction, but also to to improve their skill set in being able to both explore and influence and permission giving that this isn't just a domain that should be that of psychology and that it is perfectly reasonable and in fact important for all clinicians to have an understanding of health psychology and the influence of, of what's going on inside the brain on what someone feels. Yeah, and I think the challenge for educational institutions is that you kind of laden, laden the curriculum with anatomy and biomechanics, um, and so you kind of prime students to some extent early on to to adopt some of these biomechanical biomedical orientations, and then at some point during that course, you've got to begin to introduce the a different perspective, you know, the a different perspective or the truth. I know what we find in osteopathy that that we find it hard to have a curriculum which is Kind of replete with biomechanical, biomedical subjects, but at the same time have a have equal focus on the psychosocial side of things. The students find that hard to, to, to draw these two together. And when practicing or, or developing hands-on manual therapy skills, it's still around specificity and identifying 
you know, single joints and movement between single joints and manipulating single joints. And, and we, and as students progress through the years, it's then framed that it's, the specificity is not so important. You know, I'm going to worry about it, but it can be a real challenging experience for students because they're told one thing when they start the course, they, they are told other things uh, later on in the course, and then they are told even dip more different things when they, when they graduate. Yeah, look, I, I think it's a real challenge. And certainly it's very hard to unknow what you already know. So I have no idea if I hadn't had those years yeah. working within manual therapy, developing you know, the way in which I can handle and manipulate parts of people's bodies, uh, the way I can still perform some of those intervertebral movement tests um, in a way in which makes the person feel that I am adequately exploring the way in which their neck is moving. Look, I, I, I don't know if, if I didn't have those skills, what my effectiveness would yeah. or wouldn't be, even though I am not using the information I draw from doing those tests to very strongly influence what I am, uh, how I am trying yeah. to help or support this person. Um, and so, look, it's hard to say, you know, I still very much value the ability that my understanding of anatomy and therefore my ability to relate the importance of that or how those structures function to people because I think I'm able to do it in a way in which helps them to build on what would seem to me to be uh, very adaptive ways of coping with their problem. And so, you know, saying to a school, look, don't teach that anymore I, I, is, is, is difficult because I think I've still drawn value from it. Yeah. But I think it's the way in which it's taught to show that this is part of the system and you know within a biopsychosocial model or a, i think a biopsychosocial contextual model certainly the bio is there and we can't you know we can't ignore that yeah. and certainly we would be ludicrous to say that the body isn't either a part of the input to this person's pain experience or a key opportunity to influence it through the way that that body is uh, employed and so we still need all of that understanding and um, examination skills, but I think we just need to be clear yeah. that this is whenever, you know, through all those lectures, and the same thing, through communication, the sorts of things that the teachers are saying about the way that these structures do and don't influence people, that they can only ever produce nociception. A yeah. disc cannot produce pain. And so just being thoughtful around what we say, and so therefore how that's going to influence how our students interpret things in the same way that we should be thoughtful about what we say to our patients because that's going to influence how they interpret things. Uh, and therefore, I guess, it might be useful doing more qualitative research with the students around what they interpreted from those, those different learning uh, experiences. And therefore, we might think about different models of how we could engage in that if we find that we're still continuing to reinforce a model that within clinical practice, we hope that we have moved beyond. So I think it's about understanding those expectations and then explaining to people if those expectations are only going to be partially met or if there's going to be a lot more involved in this interaction than just those expectations, why that is. And I think possibly what we need to do is, based upon that understanding of what the students expect, um, provide that information quite early within their training when we're given the overview of all the different things that are being involved in the same way that with the patient, 
we need to understand what their expectations are. We don't want the person just leaving disappointed that I went in there because I wanted my back manipulated and they wouldn't do it. We need to have that conversation around, okay, well, manipulation is one of the ways in which we may be able to help to address this problem. Possibly it's not going to work in the way you thought it you it was going to work and that traditionally we thought that what we were doing was that we were making joints more flexible or maybe we were putting joints into place or whatever your model is. But what we've found we're doing is actually we're helping you to turn on your natural pain calming strategies within your body and then through that often you can move better afterwards and then we can use that opportunity to help teach your body that actually movement's not as bad as it, as it was interpreting that as being. And so we can still meet people midway rather than just telling people what they're going to get because that's never going to be yeah. a way that's going to bring people on board and allow us to move forward together. That changing, whether it's students, patients or clinicians' beliefs are are similar. It's kind of slowly, slowly and at a point of negotiation. Yeah, and always approaching these things from a position of curiosity rather than judgment. I think approaching it with that curiosity, people's models, their beliefs, their behaviours are all based upon their experiences and the knowledge to which they've been exposed. And it doesn't matter whether they're a student, they're a clinician or they're a patient. And so approaching it with curiosity to find out what that is, yeah. not judging it as being, ah, well, that's just, you don't know or I'm the expert, but then saying, well, I've got this knowledge base that we might be able to use to feed into that and maybe that opens us up some other opportunities. That's brilliant. Ben, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been my pleasure, Ollie. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and uh, I, I do appreciate what you're doing uh, with trying to, to help clinicians to, to develop their understanding in this area and their skill sets. So um, keep the good work up. Brilliant. Cheers, Ben. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.